Well, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, please turn with me to the book of Nahum. We return once again to the book of Nahum. And if you need help finding Nahum once again, it is between Micah and Habakkuk in the Old Testament. The book of Nahum, chapter 2. Our focus texts this evening are going to be verses 3 through 10. But I'll be reading beginning in verse 1 for context. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now to your word with anticipated hearts, we look forward, Lord, to what you have to teach us this evening therein. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be mightily at work in our hearts as we do this very thing. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Nahum chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are scarlet, are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles, they stumble in their walk, they make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed, she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall leave her, as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt! Halt! they cry. But no one turns back. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable price. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side. And all their faces are drained. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, God through Nahum provided his people with great encouragement and comfort as he called them to raise their eyes to the hills, so to speak, to look up to the mountains of Judah and see that their deliverance was near. Look up and see the feet of the messenger of peace running across the hills with haste 
to bring the good news. Last week we considered Isaiah's words about the beauty of the feet of that messenger, not because of the cleanliness of those feet. No, they were likely filthy feet as they ran through the dust. But rather, they are beautiful because of the message of the good news of salvation. With the good news that God reigns. And this was ever so evident to Judah in the victory that the Lord would bring in their deliverance from their enemies. In delivering them from the oppressive rule of Assyria. Their chastening at the hands of the Assyrians would soon be over. And in similar fashion, God has issued that call to sinners in every generation. For them to look up and to see the salvation he brings in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The messengers of peace to Judah prefigured the evangelists that would come after them. And we find that to be true in many men in Scripture, don't we? John, Peter, Paul, Timothy. Also including John the Baptist, who was a forerunner and herald of Christ. John was the one Matthew quoted Isaiah foretelling of in Matthew chapter 3 as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Beloved, Jesus is the great bringer of eternal peace to his people. And yet, as John the Baptist also said in Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this message coincides and agrees with the fire that Nahum spoke of, describing God's wrath to be like. As it would be poured out on Assyria, doesn't it? Deliverance for his people. Destruction for his enemy. These are the two big things that we see. And so God warned Assyria to ready themselves for battle as God had come before their face through his instruments of judgment, the Medes and the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar was ready to lead the charge and to be the hammer that he was known to be, as he would bring Nineveh to ruin. And in today's text, we find Nahum laying out the scene with words so descriptive that it's almost like we were watching the scene unfold in a movie. It is a scene of the great and mighty Assyria being plundered as the terror from God was unfurled on them. And so let's consider God's army in verses 3 and 4. Assyria's defense in verses 5 and 7, as well as the outcome of the assault in verses 8 through 10. But as we begin in verse 3, notice how vividly the scene is set and described. What do we see? We'll look at verse 3a. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. My friends, Nahum begins showing us what Nebuchadnezzar's men look like, as well as the quality of soldiers those men were. These weren't the men that, of the Medes and the Babylonians 
speed team, or the backup brigade, so to speak. They were the mighty men and the valiant men. They were the brave men, the, the choice men of the army. The Hebrew words for might and valor in this verse, they literally refer to their strength, their efficiency, and their wealth. Their strength, efficiency, and wealth. Their might and valor was evident as, as they appeared to be an army of blood, noted by the blood stains of war. They were not only battle-ready, but their shields and uniforms were battle-worn. They had been made red with the blood of many men. Some commentators point out that considering what the Hebrew word for valiant means, the scarlet color of the valiant men may also be describing rich clothes showing the wealth of the army. And as the Assyrians would see them, they would know that the Medo-Babylonian army was a serious threat. This wasn't child's play, but remember, remember the pride of Sennacherib. Remember the pride of Sennacherib, for he had plundered, he had conquered city after city after city. And what did Rabshakeh, his advisor, say and proclaim to Judah as he tried to intimidate them? What did we see in chapter 1? None of the other gods of these other cities helped their people. Of course, they couldn't. They're false and dead. But yet none of them ever helped them. So your God is not going to help you either. We're going to take you very easily. Prepare to die. But yet, this Medo-Babylonian army would be seen as a serious threat. And Nahum goes on to describe their weapons and their vehicles. Notice in the second half of verse 3. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the spears are brandished. Now, why does Nahum put chariots in the picture here? Well, chariots were a symbol and sign of strength in battle. As Nahum mentions the might and the valor of the men, chariots support and reinforce that picture of strength. Remember when Pharaoh changed his mind regarding his decision to let the Israelites go? What did he do? He pursued them with all of the Egyptian chariots. We see that in the book of Exodus, don't we? Exodus 14, verses 6 through 9, specifically. If you want, you can turn with me there. Exodus 14, beginning in verse 6. Notice what Pharaoh did. So he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the hearts of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea, beside the Horeath, before Baal Zephon. So we see all of these chariots that Pharaoh took. And what happened, of course, as the 
chariots pursued the Israelites, and the Lord parted the Red Sea, right? And the people walked through safely. And as the chariots came down and pursued them through that parted sea, as the people were safe, the waves torrentially came in and destroyed, killed all of the Egyptian army there, chariots, horses, and all. There was the strength of the Egyptians wiped out through the judgment of God. But what were chariots like in biblical times? We see some depictions of them in movies, don't we? But chariot designs vary from nation to nation, even across time periods as technology and resources and designs developed. All of them were horse-driven. They had at least two wheels. Most were made of wood and had a driver. Some, the more kind of top-line, more serious, more powerful, more intimidating, more harmful and destructive chariots were made of iron. But the presence of chariots was awesome on the one hand and fearsome on the other. They were intimidating. Battle chariots were mobile firing platforms, equipped with arrows, with archers, spears, etc. They made advancement in battle very quick. Chariot riders could also mow down their opponents easily by running over them and trampling them down. And so Nahum prophesied that, that the chariots would what? They would come with flaming torches. In the day of his preparation. My friends, these flaming torches could refer to fire being sparked on the stones as the wheels went quickly over them. It could also refer to the torches that were carried on the chariots to, to light their way at night. As Gideon's soldiers, for example, carried lamps in their, pitch, in their pitchers, which we see in Judges 7. As well as being a terror to their enemies as they would use them to set houses and buildings on fire wherever they went. These torches had many different purposes, and they were effective and efficient in bringing damage in and of themselves and intimidation to the opponent. But what else did Nahum say was true about them? Look at verse 4. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Wow, that's an awesome picture here, right? The, the chariots would ride swiftly, more like madmen than well-ordered soldiers through the streets. They would ride furiously, like Jehu did, as we see in 2 Kings 9, 16. Even side by side in those broad streets. They would be so close to each other in, in the, the wide streets that they would bump into each other even as they rode. And notice their movement was described to be like lightning, like, like the strikes of lightning bolts here and there, with great power and strength and agility. Their strikes would be quick and strong, and they were gone. No one could defend against them. No one could hide. The scene of the offense here, notice, then shifts the focus on 
defense. And before we consider verse 5, also think about these, the speed and the agility of these chariots being, being described as these torches and, and running like this lightning. Again, the, the Assyrian army was used to being the, the big man on the totem pole. They were used to being the top dog. They were used to being the conquerors, not the conquerors. They were used to being the plunderers, not the plunderers. And yet here, they were going to be both conquered and plundered by a force sent by God to take them down and to wipe them out. They had never experienced this before. But they were going to face the living God and his army. And so because of this, we see the focus shift to their defense in verse 5. Look at that. He remembers his nobles, the text says. They, they stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls. And the defense is prepared. My friend Sennacherib's men, his officers and his commanders in Nineveh would, would mobilize into action and try to get their men in position to, to fortify the walls and to prepare to defend the city. Remember, Nahum called them to do that. The Lord gave them encouragement. Go do that. Fortify your defenses. Man your walls. Man the fort. Get ready. And here they would. However, Nahum's picture here is that they were rushing here and there frantically, stumbling into and, and, and over each other. And look at verse 6. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. Here we see the, the strategic entry point of the Chaldean army. Nineveh was built on the great Tigris River. And so the army would either break through the gates, or they would be opened by a spy who would betray Syria. But either way, the gates would be opened, the city infiltrated, the king's palace and, and the temple of Nisroch is gone. My friends, never forget that when the Almighty God brings judgment on a people, neither their kings or palaces, their gods or temples can protect or shelter them, but all must fall with them. God is jealous of He is jealous of His own glory. He is jealous of his own worship. No others will stand. They will all fall. And what would happen as a result of this? What would happen as a result of this breach and this, this infiltration through the gates? Verse 7 says, It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maidservant shall lead her as with voices of doves beating their breasts. So Nahum speaks of this decree, divine decree, and he references she. Who is the she that he refers to here? Well, the wording in the original Hebrew isn't clear. Some scholars think that it's a reference to Queen Huzzah, the queen who concealed herself in hiding would be 
violently drawn into exile and carried away to another country. Others think it's a personified reference to the kingdom of Assyria. And based on the context, I agree with the latter interpretation. The kingdom would vanish away, it would be reduced to nothing. The whole people would, would weep and, and mourn like doves and wail the fate of this terrible kingdom. And so in verse 8, we see the outcome of this assault. Though Nineveh old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Beloved, Nahum gives a glance at the past and the present to heighten the severity of the near future. How was Nineveh like a pool of water, you may wonder? Well, in Scripture, what does water signify? It signifies multitudes. We see this to be true in the angel's words to John, for example, in Revelation 17, 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Nahum referred to the growing population of Nineveh. Nineveh was like a pool of water. It was teeming with fish. And more and more fish were being added to their number regularly. But that was the old Nineveh. That was the old Nineveh. The people of Nineveh and Nahum's day would run away like cowards in the face of God's army. They were fear-stricken, and rightly so. They knew that they couldn't stand against such great an army. They were fearful. And in fact, Nahum said that there would be those who, who cried out for the people to stop running, right? To no avail. Halt! Right? In essence, the cry was, stand together and fight. And yet no one would stop. None of them would listen. They kept running. And so God's words to the army in verse 9 are to take the spoil. Take the spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. Assyria was a great empire at the time. And remember, Sennacherib and his troops had acquired much in regards to treasure. After conquering and plundering city after city after city after city, and no one could stand against them. Undoubtedly, they had gathered quite a mass of treasure. But the Lord says, take it all. Take it all. There is no end to it. Right? There's plenty of wealth in every desirable prize. As the Chaldean, as, as the Medo-Babylonian army would be looking at, at the booty in this, in this empire, in this city, they would have eyes that would be amazed. And they weren't any slouches in strength and position either of their own, really. But yet the Lord would give them all. Give it all to them. See how God encouraged 
this army, to plunder them and to take it and, and all else as their very own prize. And the treasures that Nineveh once gloried in would soon be the pride of their conquerors. Oh, how arrogant a nation. Oh, how arrogant a city. Oh, how arrogant an empire. They could never lose a battle. And they undoubtedly would never lose the treasure, would they? Oh. But they would be the conquerors. And all that they had would be the prize of their conquerors. In verse 10, we also see another outcome of the assault. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The hearts melt, the knees shake, much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. My friends, this would be an accurate description of the face of plunder. The once full store of the Assyrians would be made empty. It would be painful for them. No rosy cheeks would be in the Assyrian ranks. All gaunt and desolate, colorless, laid waste. Mourning, weeping, what once was, and what would never be again. Beloved, when God brings judgment against sinners and their sins, He does so with decisive, powerful, and swift action. Take this with you tonight. As you consider the mighty and the valiant soldiers of the Chaldean army, and their chariots and, and the success that we see in this, in this text. But also remember, God always has the victory. Even against foes we would consider formidable from our human perspective, God always has the victory. Christ has the victory. As we know of his decisive and finished conquering of sin, death, and the devil. In the movie-like scene of Nahum's words in these verses, we, we should be reminded and filled with joy that, that Jesus took the judgment that was due to us. So that we would live and not endure the eternal wrath of God on ourselves, but He endured it upon Himself for us as He became sin for us on the cross. But yet He was victorious. He defeated he is the victor. Praise the Lord. Like the Assyrians, God's enemies will be conquered, plundered, and laid empty and desolate as they are brought under the feet of Christ. Remember that too. Jesus is the victor who is stronger than the strong man, who is stronger than Satan. As we see in Mark chapter 3 verse 27. Christ has bound the strong man. And he continues to be bound through the preaching of the gospel. His house is being plundered. Praise the Lord. And like Assyria, this will be the cause of God's enemies' great mourning, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Even as that 
will be their fate and experience in hell. In Christ's people, we shall praise Him, and we shall give Him all the glory forever and ever. Amen. For what Christ has done, for what He will do, when He returns, and even into all eternity. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray again.